there will need to be a reckoning with what what are my old beliefs about how I just eat the most productivity out of people? And do I actually believe in a more humanistic approach, which is like, yes, we want to do and produce, but we don't want to do that at the expense of the people who work for us and with us, right? And I think that that is definitely not happening fast enough. Um, and I honestly don't know if in a capitalistic society that will ever, like they'll ever be completely aligned. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with the ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Are you constantly chasing after the ticking clock, feeling like your personal life is on permanent snooze? Well, our guest today is a productivity and time management expert with nearly two decades of experience in operations and human resources for fast-paced startups and more. She took up a BA in existentialism, alternative education theory and studio art at the New York University Galatin School of Individualized Study, where she finished cum laude. She has since then shared her expertise with over 113,000 eager learners and collaborated with major clients like Google, Lyft, Workday and Capital One, proving that her methods are battle-tested. Get ready to wave goodbye to the days of feeling perpetually behind and welcome a life of balance and accomplishment with Alexis Hasselberger. Alexis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Beautiful. So you're based in the USA, but I'm curious, where did you grow up and what was the big dream when you were running around the playground? <laughs> Great question. So I grew up um, in like outside of Seattle in Washington state. So kind of the farthest Northwest you can get in the US. Um, and I'm in California now. So just a little bit, uh, a little bit lower than that. But when I was a kid, you know, it's actually funny. The thing that this is all, but this is kind of embarrassing to even say the thing that I wanted to do was to have people <laughs> listen to me, tell them how to do things better. <laughs> and <laughs> Which like now it's a very kind of crass way to say it. Um, I mean, of course, at some point I wanted to be a doctor and an astronaut at the same time. But like very quickly, I realized that was not in the cards for me. But yeah, I, I always had the sense of like, I can see there are better, more efficient ways of doing things. I can see that we want more time to do what we want. And I just want to help other people do that. So you know, it's funny. I sometimes I don't think of like I, I made it there forty years later, but <laughs> but it was a roundabout way to get there. Uh, beautiful. And so, uh, obviously, based on that, were you more of a leader or a follower during your formative years? Oh, I was definitely more of a leader. Like, and maybe maybe even a not a great leader because I was definitely the kind of kid who in, you know, in high school and in school, if I had to do a group project, I would tell all the other kids in my group, like, don't worry, I'm going to do all the work. We're going to get an A and please just don't, I don't want your opinions. I don't need it. <laughs> so I feel like I've grown personally since then, but yeah, I was, I was always just like, let me do it. It'll be more, it'll be faster, better if I just do it myself. And then, you know, of course, you can't run a company by doing it all yourself. <laughs> Little Miss Independence. <laughs> Beautiful. I, and was there a role model? You know, obviously, you know, you're highly independent. You, you, you obviously could clearly see what needed to be done. Um, you know, gave, give me the impression that you're quite intelligent in, in a way on, on your way you looked at things. 
Was there someone there that was a strong role model for you that gave you direction during those times? You know, was it your family? Or was, it, was there someone else or you were just like, I've got this? Yeah, I mean, I always find this question a little hard because I don't have like role models or people that I like aspired to be or like looked up to. I mean, certainly there were lots of people around me that I'm sure I got great stuff from. I mean, I always think about how my mom always told me, never work more than 40 hours a week because then they will expect it. Right. And so it's like, there's little tidbits that I have here and there, but I never felt like, ah, there's like a person I'm trying to emulate or like a, a thing I'm shooting for. Um, it was more just like, how can I enjoy? I mean, I'm always focused on like, how can I enjoy the most of my time? Right. We all have stuff we don't want to do, but how can I shift the balance so that I'm spending more of my time doing stuff I want to do and less of my time doing stuff I have to do but don't really want to do. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, don't do more than 40 hours. I mean, I broke that rule way too early when I was young. Um, in in regards, we're, we're seeing uh, quite a big push in this part of the world. I mean, I, I know it's been building momentum throughout the world around potentially looking at, do we do four-day weeks? Do we mm -hmm. reduce the number of hours to 32 hours? Is this actually going to solve the problem? My question is, is 40 hours the actual problem? And because so, they're all they're all going, let, let's do the same amount of work in 32 hours, you know, and, and this will make us feel happier and, and have a more fulfilling like life. My question is, is 40 hours the problem and actually will 32 hours solve the problem? So I don't know that for like, I think that it's very reductive to say that like 40 hours in the problem is the problem. Like when my mom said that to me, what I took from it was don't do more than you're willing to do sustainably. Yeah. Right. Like, that's how I kind of think of it is like, I don't, have I worked more than 40 hours at times in my life? Of course I have. But do I want that to be the default? No, I don't. What I do think is that if we want any kind of change around like the amount of time that we're working or like what are the standards and things like that, that we actually have to think about how we work during the day. Because most people that I work with, their time is like their time during the nine to five during the day is like 80 to 90% meetings. Most of those meetings, they consider a waste of their time. So do I think that we could get 40 hours of work done in 32 hours? I do, but a lot will need to change. And it's often around like what we're doing in the peripheries, right? Because I think that, yeah, we need to have fewer meetings if we want to be able to spend more of that time doing the work that we're doing. We need to work on our distraction. We need to talk about our communication norms because there's no way to um, consistently get deep work done if you're being interrupted by Slack every five minutes, right? And so I think that um, 32, just saying, hey, we're gonna go from 40 hours to 32 hours isn't gonna do anything at all, right? But changing the way that we work so that we might be actually able to get our job done in 32 hours, I think that's possible. It's just gonna take a hell of a lot more work than saying like, oh, we're just gonna change the hours we work if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating conversation. And, and, you know, I've, I've spent time with the, the people that started what was considered the, the first kind of four hour working week with perpetual guardian there, um, Andrew Barnes and his team. And, and, you know, they talk about all the really good things that have happened and that you build this momentum and everyone's really into it. And, and my, you know, like I've watched people, over years who are highly productive, who are high performing in periods of time, there's something new, exciting, they get stuck into it and away they go. Then over time, mm -hmm. they fall back into either old habits or they get back into a space of like, you know what, I don't want to move this fast. I don't want to be packing in 10 hours of work and eight hours type thing. So the, the, you know, the interesting part around here is, is it a behavior shift or is there actually, do we need to be looking at something even bigger than the behavior shift to, to actually consider what will help people be more happy and fulfilled in life and what role mm -hmm. does work fill, uh, what role does yeah work play as a part of that? Yeah. I mean, huge questions, right? But like, I, I don't think that, I think that it's very difficult to change like large structures on an individual behavior level, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that when we are talking about 
um, you know, work and its fulfillment to life. One, that means very different things to all sorts of different people, right? And so there are some people who just want to show up at work, do a good job, and like not think about it afterwards, right? There are other people, entrepreneurs for, you know, a lot of times who like, this this thing, this baby, this work, it is the thing that they find both professionally and personally the most mm. compelling that they want to spend more of their time on. And so I think it's not just, it's not a dichotomy, like it's not an easy thing to say, like, here's the way we're going to do it and it's going to work for everyone. Um, but I think that's where moving towards a, a realm where we're more focused on asynchronous um, work where we are doing better documentation around things allows for us to have the flexibility to be able to have people working different schedules that work for them to have some people who are really packing it in and other people who you know need more need more time in their day for whatever reason either because it's hard for them to concentrate for long periods of time or because they have family responsibilities they need to take care of and so I think it's just not a one-size-fits-all yeah, I mean, do do you feel kind of the advent or, or this big wave of technology that is increasing and growing on us on daily in regards to shaping the workforce? Is it going to make the lazier lazier and the busier people busier? I mean, I think this is the way that I think about all these things. Like all of the AI, like ChatGPT, all of this stuff, like I use that stuff every day. I love it, right? Um, I think that if I look back, if you look back to like, when are the last times people talked about big waves of technology that were going to massively change everything, right? Like, oh, we're going to have a paperless office. There's not going to be any more paper. No, absolutely not. Right. Or like, oh, we're going to, we can do all of this stuff on the, you know, on the internet. And like, we can have these, you know, we can be more efficient because nobody has to, you know, walk to their meetings anymore. We have them all on zoom. And then what did people do? They just filled up that time with more meetings. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's a lot of intentionality that has to go into this stuff. And the way that I am, am always thinking about these changes in technology is I don't want to adopt an efficiency technology to help me do more work, right? I want to adopt an efficiency technology so that I can do the same stuff in less time so that I have more time for other stuff that may be more compelling to me, right? So it's like, I don't think, oh, great, ChatGPT could help me write three blog posts in two hours. I think, hey, it could help me write one blog post in a half an hour and then I will have an extra hour that day to do something else, to go on a walk or, you know, et cetera. And so I, I see this a lot when I do like calendar audits with my clients as well. Mm. They'll they'll do a calendar audit, they'll claw back like 10 hours a week. And if you're not careful, next week there's 10 more hours of meetings in there, right? It's like the thing that we were trying to do didn't actually um, solve the problem. And so I think that we need to both be thinking about these technologies and how they could help us, coming back to what you said, achieve the the type of balance, the type of flow that works best for us in how does our life relate to our jobs? How does our life relate to our work? Yeah, the best advice I ever got was, and this is when I worked in a company, we had 500 staff, I was 2IC, we, had, we were integrating multiple areas, um, every conversation, every email, every message, um, everything I wrote was changing every every five minutes. It was a different topic, different area, like very full on. And so best piece of advice was it never fill up more than 20% of your calendar with meetings because it, mm -hmm. you'll have spontaneous ones that will come on. And we were working hospitality too. So you had to, you, things would come up. And, yeah. and that was, yeah. that was a, a huge game changer for me. And, and I used it a lot with people. Um, mm -hmm. what I find interesting too, is I book it, like I start the week with the meetings on the Monday with our mm -hmm. team. So I get them out mm -hmm. of the way done. Yeah. And then I find that yep. frees up the rest of the week. Uh, mm -hmm. I found those really fascinating in regards to looking at calendar. What other things have you found with people that, that you uh, that, that make them allow them to be more productive or free them up a little bit more? Yeah. So I think that one of the first things is just 
reviewing all your recurring meetings, right? And I think the 20% rule is a good rule. I think a lot of people find that really difficult to make happen. But anytime, I think about it in terms of like advance and protect, right? So it's like claw back some time and then make it so that nobody else can schedule on that time, right? And then claw back a little more time and make it so that nobody else can schedule on that time. Um, I think another thing is just what I call Swiss cheese calendar, which is like, you just have, you know, you do you have the opposite of what you're talking about, right? You had all your Monday, your Monday was just all the meetings and that frees up the rest of the week. A lot of people have just their whole day. They never have more than a half an hour or 45 minutes when they're not in a meeting, mm -hmm. right? And so even just consolidating some of those gives you time to do some deep work, Um I do something a little different than you do. I mean, I, I try to consolidate my meetings, but I have Monday as my no meeting day. There's never a meeting on Monday. Uh, and I, I used to do this as well when I worked for other people. And I would I would consolidate my one-on-ones typically on Tuesday, but Monday would be the day where no meetings. I just got creative work done, deep work done, because what I found is that when people try to do a no meeting day later in the week, they have less um, ability to protect it. Mm -hmm. Because if you're like, hey, we need to, if your meeting, no meeting day is Friday and it's Thursday and your boss is saying, hey, we need to meet on this this week. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to give up part of that, that Friday that you had said you were going to have no meetings, right? And so thinking about when you can work in time that is a non-negotiable for deep work, I think is something that is also really helpful. And then making meetings recorded, right? I think that's another just like low hanging fruit is that so often we invite people to meetings like who don't need to be there uh, just because we want them to have the information. So it's either record the meeting and let people watch it on double speed or send out notes after the meeting to all the people that might need to know the information, but don't actually need to be in the meeting. Um, another thing I see with a lot of my corporate clients is that somebody who's in like middle management might have three meetings a week where all they're doing is presenting the exact same information to different parties. Mm. Right. And that just, it feels like they're like, well, I, one of them is with my peers and one of them is with my boss and one of them is with my boss's boss or whatever it is. And that just sucks up a lot of people's time as well. When there are often much better ways to do status updates than having a meeting about it. Okay. This or is multiple. Yeah, this is cool. All right, this is fascinating. Um, this is all good, right? So let's consolidate our meetings. Let's reduce them. Let's let's cut out the the, the extra ones. But in this world of uh, flexible working and people working remote, yep, where we're not having physical meetings as much, right? Okay, yes, some companies may have a lot of physical meetings, but in many cases they're not having that many physical meetings, and in some cases zero, like everything's online. Yeah, sure. Where do we then find that time? If we're reducing those meetings, we're cutting things out, where do we find that time to be shaping culture, to be building rapport, uh, building those connections and relationships that are so important that we would normally do if we walked into someone's office or we bumped into someone or we saw them at lunch, uh, we, put, we were picking up a cup of coffee at the coffee cart. Where do we, how, how do we ensure we, we are able to shape that culture to build those relationships and rapport. Yeah. So I think one, this is not something that has been figured out yet. Right. But I think some things that I've seen um, working and all of this requires intentionality is things like doing offsites more often. Right. So, um, you know, I, I work with some companies who are just completely remote. The money they used to spend on an office building is now being repurposed for monthly or quarterly live events where they're bringing part of the team or, you know, maybe if it's a small company, all of the team to have, you know, a couple of days where they're all together, right? Um, I also think that things like virtual coffees, right? Virtual lunch, just because we're not going to the sandwich shop doesn't mean we can't say, hey, go grab your lunch. I'm going to grab my lunch and we're going to sit here on Zoom and we're going to eat our lunch together and chit chat, right? Um, I think that Having a, a like water cooler channels in the uh, in the Slack in the Slack is great too. As like, where is a place where people can go to talk about things that are not work, right? Like, where is the place where we would, hey, if we ran into somebody in the kitchen, we might have chatted about our weekend or shown them a cute picture of our dog or our new baby or whatever. Like having a virtual space for that sort of thing. And then there are of course like. Slack's trying to solve this with Donut and like there's all sorts of other technological things um, 
you know, maybe, maybe VR has a place here at some point, not right now, but like, you know, if you think back to the book Ready Player One, where like they're doing VR school and they're essentially walking in, meeting their friends, like maybe there's a VR office on the horizon. I don't know if that like, hopefully it's not going to be like <laughs> what we saw of, you know, just you sitting in a virtual conference room, but you know, hopefully it's something more interesting than that. But I think that we really just have to be more intentional about where do we make space for that? In the meetings that we are having, we're going to reserve five minutes at the top for chit chat, for getting to know each other better. We're not going to say, how are you anymore? We're going to say like, give me two words or two feelings for how things are going on for you right now so that we get like real meaty stuff. Mm. I think there are a lot of small things we can do, but I also just don't think this has been totally solved yet. No, it's a, it's a moving space and it requires lots of experimentation and exposure. Uh, we, we love to talk about here, you know, you, um, Malcolm Gladwell uh, kind of bought famous the research uh, that was done by someone else around the 10,000 hour principle to mastery. Yep. Uh, we, Jessica Kylie, one of my colleagues, talks about the 10,000 experiments and I like to go another step further where it's 10,000 exposures. So we, we do emotionally expose yourself and things like that and, and take risk and uncertainty. And mm -hmm. so I, I think that's going to be important for companies, for HR professionals and that to create those spaces of exposure, experimentation uh, before we are able to get to a space where we really understand and uh, for what, what works well in a specific situation for companies to have effective relationships and rapport building and um, right. and, and shape their culture for the future. So mm -hmm. it's an exciting time. I, like, I like this because there's a blank canvas, so to speak. And every time you think you might got it right, then there's going to be something that hits you from the side and goes, ah, I didn't think about that. <laughs> or where did right. that come yeah. from? Right. And you get, I mean, I think that what's exciting to me about this too, is that not only do you get to experiment, but you get to iterate and you also, when you are embracing the kind of, you know, experimentation of change, you're not you're you're understanding rightfully that even if you had the perfect strategy right now it might not be perfect a year from now right and so you're you kind of get into this constant you know communicate experiment iterate repeat mm. right and like the, what what i like to do with my clients is just some very simple things it's like questions we should be asking regularly are what's working well so we can double down on it and what's not working very well so we can experiment with what might work better right and when we ask these questions regularly i find that it also helps to normalize the fact that not everything is going to be going smoothly all the time Right. And that we can bring up little things that aren't going so well, even if it's not a super big deal, because if we can make micro adjustments on these things, we can avoid things becoming a big deal. So, so here's a question around culture. OK, so mm -hmm. really what, what the current workforce is showcasing is where there may have been issues in culture previously they're kind of being accentuated for those companies that had great cultures beforehand they're also being accentuated they're they're being um, magnified in a way with yeah. with kind of the awareness everyone has in this space with regards cultures in most companies if i ask someone what their culture is they won't be able to explain it they yep. cannot explain what it is it's, it's in most cases culture is invisible no one actually knows what it is or how to mm -hmm. explain it. Now, we've always had lots of different microcultures. Yeah. Uh, there's always been microcultures within the culture. As we, as we progress in our current flexible working kind of workforce space as it's evolving at the moment, how do we find those spaces to shape culture and observe culture and understand culture when for many leaders now the 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 pockets of microculture are quite different and being able to see what's going on is even a lot more harder than what it might have been before how do we keep an eye on that how, how do we make sure that it's heading in the right direction yeah yeah well i think one of the good litmus tests for culture is who is like what behaviors, what, you know, interactions, what kind of people are being hired, fired and promoted, right? Because culture is all about what we do and not at all about what we say, even though 
a lot of times, you know, a lot of times when you ask a leader, like what's their culture, they'll point to the wall and they'll point to their core values and they'll say, this is our culture. That is never their culture, right? Never. Um, maybe sometimes, sometimes there are some companies where what they do and what they say overlap, right? Mm-hmm. And are, are more, you know, are, are more, the Venn diagram is like more of a circle, right? Yeah. But I think for a lot of companies, like they point to this stuff on the wall and they're like, this is us. And I think actually, if you want to know what your culture is and if you want to shape it, you have to audit who is being hired, fired, and promoted yeah. because those are the types of behaviors that it's that you're really showing, yes, these are our true values. And some of the ways that we can shape culture is around what are our policies around the way that people behave, right? What are, yeah, what what things are we showing everyone? Oh, this is a promotable, per- like the, the way that they're doing this is, you know, something we want more of, or, hey, this behavior, this type of interaction does not fit at our company at all, right? I think those are some of the ways that, that we look at this. Um, And then I also think that like, if you want your culture to be in accordance with your corporate values, then you have to start praising people when they do things in accordance with the corporate values. And you have to start talking about corrective action when we're doing things that are absolutely against that, you know? Yeah. One of the best ways to shape something is reinforce positive behavior. Right. 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 Don't focus on the negative because you, you'll draw attention to it. If people don't know right. what is right and you're not right. rewarding or recognizing that, it's very difficult right. for people to see it. The I like that approach of kind of really assessing, you know, who are you hiring, firing and retaining in a way, um, which is great. When we look at trying to build more diverse and inclusive environments and and the greater the diversity the more challenges we may face in regards to aligning people to something so what you know when we talk about behaviors and that what is crucial from a leader's point of view in regards to instilling something that's really core while keeping diversity amongst the the thoughts and ideas and people and behaviors and background, et cetera, that we need to to think bigger and greater around what we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Diversity is incredibly important. And not only just because it's important, but also, I mean, science shows us that we have better ideas, like we produce better ideas, we do better, we are more productive when we have a breadth of diversity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of like what can a leader do, right? To think about that, to keep people kind of steering the ship in the same direction, even though there's a lot of of diversity there. I think one of the first things that we can do is to focus on psychological safety. Because if like we can align around a set of goals, right? We can align Mm -hmm. around what are we trying to do, but we want to be able to have the diversity of like how we get there, right? And so I think that keeping like, if you want people on board on your company, you want to have them focus, like you want them to care about your mission, right? Or at least be good enough at pretending that they care about your mission, that they can kind of keep that going in the right direction. But then I also think that we want to think really deeply about psychological safety, because without true psychological safety, if people do not feel like they can share their ideas, that they can share who they are, that they can talk about, you know, things that matter to them, if they don't feel like they can make mistakes without being shamed, then we won't get any good ideas, right? Like the 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 mission will almost be lost. And so I think that's where, that's one of the places where we need to focus. So what's the first step in building psychological safety for a diverse group of people from a leader's perspective? Yeah. So I think one of the best things you can do is ask for differing opinions, right? To like ask, ask for feedback. So there's a lot of things you can ask for feedback from your direct reports, right? Um, About you and how you could be doing better. I think you can in a a team meeting, if somebody is um, bringing up a point of view that is absolutely against your point of view, you say, hey, thank you so much. It's really good to hear dissenting opinions. Like, I'm really glad you brought this up, right? If somebody makes a mistake, it's not like, we're going to shove it under the rug. It's like, hey, would you be open to um, to talking about how we made this mistake so that other people can learn not how like how we can not make a similar mistake in the future? Like it's really highlighting these things. 
One of my favorite things that I think a leader can do, and I don't remember, I can't remember where I heard this, so I wish I could give the person credit, but I just don't remember it is, you know how like, when, like, what do you think if, if you're new at a job and your boss pings you and they say, hey, do you have a few minutes to chat? Right. Like what 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 happens in your brain then? What are you thinking? Uh, I, I need to prioritize the boss, right, for the chat. Right. Or like it's, I did something wrong. Yeah. Right. A lot, of, a lot of people are thinking like, uh oh, why do they want to have a quick chat with me? Mm. And so I feel that like one of the best things you can do just from like every new hire is within the first week of somebody starting, especially in a remote company or hybrid situation, ping that new hire and say, hey, do you have a few minutes to chat? And then when you get on the call, just praise them for something they did, something they did well, right? Like so that they don't have that negative association mm. of like, oh, I got to hide whatever it right. is, right? Um, so I think anything you can do to praise again, those behaviors that you want to see to make feel, people feel like, oh, that person had an idea and it was like a hundred percent, not what the boss was saying, but the boss was excited about hearing that idea. Those are the types of things that you can do on a by person basis. Yeah. Great. I really like, I'm just going to go back to something you mentioned just before around learning from the lessons, you know, when mistakes made, what were the lessons learned? Uh, I know in our team meeting on a Monday morning, no, sorry, Monday afternoon, one of the key things in there that people report back on is what was your lesson from this week that, that you can share that can help someone else or you need help with because you haven't solved it yet. What's it? Yeah. So rather than what's the challenge you face or what mistakes did you make? It's like, no, we actually want to know what is the lesson you learned from it. Yeah. Um, and I find that really, really valuable and people really like that component. And, and if they don't have one, it's okay. Like they, they right. don't have to go digging in really deep to find something. It's like, no, what did you, is something come up? Uh, and the team have found that really valuable, especially what, what they can, what other people can learn from that, which I think is really, really interesting. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, yeah, we used to do something sort of similar, but I actually like yours better at a company that I, that I worked for where every week we had a staff meeting and it would just go on a rotation and it was like, okay, who like, we, we called it learnings yeah. and someone just present like a mistake that had been made by their team or that something that they had learned. And it would be like, Hey, I'm going to show you exactly what went down so that you don't have to, you know, have this fate. Right. right. So that you can learn so something, something pretty similar. Yeah. Very, very good. Now, what, what drew you into uh, your early career around human resources, that, mm -hmm. that space, what, what drove you to there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I mean, you read what I was kind of laughing when you were reading what my degree was, right? Because like a lot of people, I did not go into um, college with an idea of like, I'm going to, I'm going to get a really hireable degree here. I instead was like, I'm going to do things that are interesting to me. Existentialism, education theory, art, right? And so I think, you know, I worked full-time through college and I, I ran a small team of researchers at an M&A firm. And I was, I, I've always been like a pretty organized person. I have to be because I have a really terrible memory. And so um, I think out of college, I was just like, I'm, you know, what I, I can do like any kind of like administrative role, right? Like I'm going to excel at anything like that. And so I just, the first things out of college were like office manager or operations manager, those types of things. And working in startups was something I loved because your, your breadth was so much greater, right? Like if you're working at a large company and your job is like, office manager or whatever, you have a prescribed set of things that you're going to be doing. If you're working at a startup of five people and your job is office manager, well, you're also legal liaison and financial and, you know, you're doing all of these things. And so the HR piece um, became something that that I was both interested in from a, a kind of psychological level and, and supporting people in the company. And uh, it also was just something that was often tied into the operational things that I was doing. And I, it became clear that I was pretty good at, at consultative work, right? And I think that a lot of times when you're doing HR, you are in a very consultative role. Like, how do you tell, I have an employee who smells really bad. How do I tell them that? Well, that question's coming to me, right? How do you tell them that without making them feel bad? Or like, oh, we have to do a layoff. What do we need to do to make sure that this you know, this necessary but terrible thing that we have to do goes as well as possible, right? And so- it kind of what drew me to it was the uh, the uh, everything was always changing, and so I got to never be bored. Yeah, 
never be bored. And now you, and, and obviously through that, obviously we, we've seen a lot more instances now where the HR professional has become a more important or, or seen as a more important part of the strategy and direction and vision of an organization. And, and I've always found that fascinating. I, I never could understand why they weren't already that and, and why it's taken a pandemic uh, to kind of bring it to the front. And even then, I'm still not sure in all cases that it's actually the, the HR profession is positioned as well as it should be. It has such a critical role in not only who comes into the organization, but also the care of people in that organization. Where does it need to go? Well, I think you're you're bringing up something that any HR person listening to will be like, yes, why has it taken so long to get a seat at the table? And why is my seat off in the corner and smaller than everybody else's, right? Uh, and I think that if I, if I, I'm gonna pontificate about this one, the field is called human resources, which if you take a step back, that's really a terrible name, right? It's like the most like removed from re like, yeah, I don't know, from humanity name that you could apply. It's like there are these humans and we're using them as resources, right? Yeah. So I think that I think that it was often like in the early stages where it used to be called personnel, right? It was much more about who are the people that file the paperwork, right? And that people in those roles weren't thought of as uh, consultative partners at all, right? It was like, who makes sure that somebody gets on the benefits and who uh, sends you annoying emails to tell you that, you know, benefits renewal is coming along and who is giving you, you know, your lackluster pay raise, <laughs> like who's even though that's coming from your boss, it's like HR is the one, the delivery mechanism. And so I think it used to be thought of as a much more transactional mm. administrative function. And I think that, you know, like for me, I always worked for really small companies where that was never the case because there weren't, well, there wasn't enough like bifurcation of work, right? It's like I had to do everything, and I really like that. But I think that as like more and more, we've started to realize no, like humans really like they're more than just resources, right? They they are certainly working for this company, but also they are important for themselves. And also when we care about the people and spend time focusing on the needs of the people who work for our organization, then that also helps the organization to be much more productive overall, right? And so I think that we're starting to see this as more of a synergy, but I I would hesitate to say that like most HR people feel valued because I don't think they do. Mm. We're seeing a lot of different job titles in the HR profession space or the uh, the people space. Yeah. <laughs> we'll try and move HR if we can here. Um, you know, people and culture, well-being, uh, learning and development, talent development, work health and safety, the list goes on, right? There's more and yep. more um, opportunities. There's more and more roles in the space. So the department is getting bigger. Are we getting to a point where the human is the center of decision making at an organization or we do we need to? Uh, is probably a question. Do we need to get there and and is it getting there fast enough? So I mean, I think if we could get to I think there's just like we're at a we're at odds still, right? Like the company and the employee are not necessarily friends, right? I mean, they want to be, but really as long as the company's incentives and the workers' incentives are so unaligned, mm. I find that it's like, yeah, it's not happening fast enough, right? Because I think that, you know, there will need to be a reckoning with what what are my old beliefs about how I just eke the most productivity out of people? And do I actually believe in a more humanistic approach, which is like, yes, we want to do and produce, but we don't want to do that at the expense of the people who work for us and with us, right? And I think that that is definitely not happening fast enough. Um, and I honestly don't know if in a capitalistic society that will ever, like they'll ever be completely aligned mm -hmm. because as long as 
people are focused. There's some people at the top always focused on profits and there are people down here doing the work and the people up here are going to take it, take it, take as much as they can. Like that's at odds. Right. Mm. And so I do think there are pockets of companies who have started to change the way that they do these sorts of things. Um, there are, I mean, even I'm just going to like look at Patagonia, right? I know that they have a workplace culture that is um, much more human centered, right? In terms of people's ability to be flexible and was so long before the pandemic, right? I think yeah. it started because like they wanted to go surfing or skiing or something like that, right? Like there are companies that have kind of built in this flexibility. There are companies like, like Zappos, right? Where people are empowered to use their discretion to make decisions, right? Customer service people can like make decisions about things like that is more human centered. Mm. But I think those companies are so few and far between. Yeah, hundred um, percent. But, and they're really, really good examples. I like that. Uh, and we can learn a lot off them, especially with the way the, the workforce is going. You spend a lot of time now on time management, productivity, um, you know, people feeling more fulfilled and, and happy, etc. What was the decision to move away from working f um, in a company to now working with companies from an external perspective? Yeah, so the, the real and true answer to this is that I had worked for the same CEO at a couple of different startups for like the last 10 years or so before I went off on my own. And like a lot of startups do, the last one that uh, that we were working on went out of business. And at the end of that, the I, I thought about the prospect of like going to look for another job and having to like prove myself all over again and build up the autonomy and the, you know, trust that I had built up over the last 10 years. And it was just a really distasteful proposition to me. I was just like, I, I just don't want to do that. Like I would much rather work for myself and have more control over uh, the things that I'm doing and not have to build up that trust and autonomy again. And so I think then I was like, great, I'll just start a business. That'll be easy. I mean, I didn't think that'll be easy, but it was like, that seemed like the, the better path for my own fulfillment than to go out and get another job working for someone else. And I have found that, you know, for myself, I didn't ever think I would be an entrepreneur. Like I didn't think that I would start a business. It was like, I'm a pretty risk averse kind of a person. Mm. Um, but I think that I got to a certain point in my career when I realized like, is way more, it's way more fulfilling for me to wake up every day and know that I'm working towards my own goals than to get up every day and work towards somebody else's goals. Mm. So time management, burnout, productivity, et cetera. This is an interesting one, right? Because everyone has different motivations. Uh, people have different speeds of doing things. Uh, we're always going to have a disparity inside an organization around people who are naturally product more productive than others, people that are, are more intrinsically motivated than others. When it comes to burnout, are you seeing that the people most likely to get burnout are the ones who are highly motivated or lowly motivated? Oh, I think high, people who want to do well are definitely the most burnt mm. out, right? And so I, I think that like what happens is that if we, one, none of us will get it all done, right? You, me, everyone else, we are all going to die with a big long list of things we didn't do but wanted to do. Right. And I think that the more kind of inclined towards doing things right, doing things well, accomplishment, et cetera, you are, the easier it is to burn out because that reality is true for everyone. You're never going to do it all. Like you, me, and everyone else, we could work and we could work 18 hours a day, every day for the rest of our t entire lives. And there would always be more work to do tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think those folks that have this like, desire to do, to accomplish, to be the best, to be, you know, sometimes people struggle with perfectionism. I see those people burning out a lot more than people who might not, um, maybe just like don't identify their value with their job, right? A lot of people identify their value as a person with what they do for work. And I think that I see more burnout in those areas. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. It, it makes me think too, because I feel burnout is quite uh, commonly overprescribed or 
or described for someone versus, you know, like I, I could work 18 hour weeks back to back to back and never get burnt out. I might get tired. I might get fatigued and my energy might be low. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm not actually burnt out. So for those out there who, who don't quite understand the difference between being in a fatigue state or chronic fatigue or, or stressed or tired versus what actually burnout is, can you define in your, your, your eyes what burnout is? Yeah, so I think one of the defining factors of burnout is that not only do we experience the fatigue, the, you know, the lack of energy, the, uh, you know, motivation, all of these things, but we also have kind of lost a sense of meaning with the work that we're doing. Mm. And so like for you, I would say that, yeah, if you're working towards something you really want to be doing and you feel alignment in your values there, you might be working 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day and not feel burnt out because you have this higher goal in place and you know you're working towards it. Mm. I think a lot of times, you know, I don't know if you see this, but like a lot of times nonprofit people who are feel like they're burning out at nonprofits, right? Sometimes just reconnecting with why they're doing what they're doing can actually alleviate some of that burnout feeling because it's like we lose, we just kind of, we're like, oh, we're working, we're on this hamster wheel. And then we just lose, we lose sight of why. I also think that it has to do with boundaries and knowing what works mm. for you. So just like we talked about all sorts of different people, right? Some people may very well be able to be totally happy working 10, 8, 10, 12 hours a day, right? Um, other people have different boundaries around that or need different boundaries in order to get the rest and the relaxation to be productive, to be doing the things that they want to be doing when they want to be working, right? And so I think that if there's a misalignment with how much you want to be working and how much you are working, I think that comes into burnout as well. Because I think you're right. It's not this binary thing like, hey, if you hit 12 hours a day, you're going to be burnt out. It could be very different for very different people. All right. So that brings a good question here around reward and recognition in the workplace. All right. If you've got mm -hmm. someone who is highly motivated, works fast, highly productive, um, you know, is, is someone that that is driven versus someone that takes it a little bit easier. Maybe he's quite happy to work six hours a day um, mm -hmm. and then kind of float through the rest. I, yeah. But there's, you know, that, that highly productive person may put in the 12 hours just because they love what they do. Yeah. How do we then reward and recognize those that just have this higher drive and determination versus those who are still doing a really good job, but don't have that, that fuel. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think there's a couple things here. One of them is that I think focusing on hours worked is the wrong metric by all accords, right? I think that if we want to be able to apples to apples, evaluate people, we need to be, uh, we need to be evaluating against actual work produced, right? Like we need to be, we need to be setting goals and we need to be evaluating against those goals because to be quite honest, like, I don't care if, if I, if I think this is a reasonable amount of, if I as a manager, I'm like, these are great goals. Like if we did this by the end of the quarter, like it would be fantastic. And I have somebody who spent three hours a day and knocked it out of the park. I quite frankly, don't care. Like I just wanted to get those goals done. Right. And so there might be someone who spends more time on that. There might be someone who spends less time. Um, but I think it's really managing towards goals and work product, not this kind of butts and seats mentality. And I think this is a big shift coming out of like an office environment into a hybrid or remote space is that not only do we not even have access to like how frequently people, like when people are working, but also we need to stop caring about that. And we need to get a lot better at managing towards results. Um yeah. And then I have, I have another thing to say about that, but I want to get your reaction there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting. I, I'm maybe didn't clearly explain this because you might have someone that is uh, super, like, like super fast at doing something, right? They're highly productive. Um, mm -hmm. They can get good, like they'll get the job done, right? They'll achieve the goal, but they don't really care. Um, versus someone who really cares, but it takes them a really long time to get stuff done. Do we still mm -hmm. reward and recognize based on outcome and output, or should we be looking at reward and recognition beyond the output and outcome? 
I hate the idea of people having to care. <laughs> like, and so here's what I mean by this. Like, I worked for a lot of companies and did a really good job for them. I never cared about the mission or what they were doing or whatever. I cared about doing a good job, right? And so I think that's where I feel like, yeah, I'm not going to reward somebody more who has more passion for the thing that we're doing. Um, be, if, if there's somebody else who, you know what, it's not like they're end all be all, but they're still doing a damn good job at it, right? Yeah. Is that no, what so, you're so, No, so let, let, let's look at care in different ways here, right? So yes, you could care for the mission vision, like, um, but I think it's more around care for other people uh, or care about the client or care about those aspects that I think uh, are more important. Yeah, so I think that if you care about those things, right? Like, like that is important. That is part of doing a good job, mm -hmm. right? It's like we all need to know what are the pieces of our role that that make it to that we're doing a good job, right? So if you are working with clients and you're not you're not showing that you care about those clients and showing that you care about clients is something that is important to keeping those clients, then you are actually not doing a good job, mm -hmm. right? And so I think it's defining like what are the things that are important for any um, any workplace or any job or any role, and we're uh, we're evaluating against those things. And I think that you can be really good at showing care without actually caring. I guess that's that's what I that I kind of yeah, mean yeah. by this. And that's okay with me, right? Like you don't have like if you do a really good job at the job and you go home and you're like, yep, like, I don't want to think about this till tomorrow. No problem with me, but you're doing a really good job. To me, that's totally fine. Okay. Okay, so, good. But yeah. but say that, but say you're doing, a, okay, so I'll put you back in your shoes <laughs> when you're at school. And it was yeah. like, um, so if we think about it, you, you're like, okay, I can get the job done. Don't uh -huh. worry about this. I've got this. Yeah. And it's you focus. So say you put yourself in that shoe, you're in an organization, hundred yeah. percent, I can do this. And you'll go hundred miles ahead, forgetting that mm -hmm. there's other people in there that we also need to collaborate and connect with that may not be working at the same speed, mm -hmm. uh, which is I mean, going to help the overall, uh, yeah. the overall culture and the overall output and productivity of the company grow. So it's, right. th it's thinking of looking at those, the individuals, the stars versus the all-star yeah. team in a way. So ensuring that when we look at reward and recognition, we go beyond just the output and outcome oh, of yeah. a specific task to, to looking at those greater pieces. 100%. I mean, I am a big believer in, I don't want any um, rock star assholes on the team, right? Yeah. Like. I don't want somebody who's going to be amazing at what they do mm. and a jerk to everyone else. Because mm. uh, I, I guess what I, maybe where where we're like missing on communication is like I think those other things, that teamwork, that all that other stuff, that is part of doing a good job, mm. right? Like that is that is part of it, and that is part of what. So if our if our company value like to reduce it, right? If our company values teamwork, and we are going to, um, let's say, value having true buy-in for all of the things that we're doing or value making sure that we get all the voices in. And you're not doing that because you're like a rock star over here just doing your own thing. Then you're not actually a rock star in this environment, mm. right? I think there's this other, um, you know, the the work of Kim Scott and Radical Candor? No, uh, enlighten me a bit more. Anyways, she, she, uh, she wrote this book and has a podcast and it's basically about how can you... Like, how do you communicate in the workplace? And like, how do you essentially, I think that the subtext of her of her book is how to be a kick-ass manager without lo losing your humanity or something yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> and the, the whole idea is that you can both care personally and challenge directly. Yeah. But when you do things outside of that, it, you know, it, it goes off the course. And she has this idea of rock stars and superstars. And it's kind of like a rock star is somebody who is just doing a great job day after day, but maybe they don't have any higher aspirations to grow at the company, or they don't want more and more responsibility. They're just like happy in their role, doing a great job day after day. And then there are also 
people who are superstars, what she calls them. And these are people who are on like a meteoric rise, right? And they're doing a great job, but they're doing a great job and, and trying to get more and more and more and do more and more and more. And what I like how she talks about this is that these types of people are both important. And also you're not stuck in that identity. Like you might be a rock star right now because you have new baby at home and you're like just trying to do your best job as you can. You don't want more responsibility. You've already got a lot going on. Or maybe you're like really into your skateboarding or something after work or something like that. But you just want to do a really great job. And then there are other people who are like, no, work is like all consuming for me. And this is what I want to do. And I just want to go up and up and up. Mm. And that those people are both valuable to have on a team. And knowing where you are at what phase is also valuable. And we're not going to you know, discount the work of the rock star because they're not the superstar. They're not on that path. Yeah. Okay, great. L like this. Um, I, when I look at burnout and I look at productivity, how much responsibility sits on the organization? How much sits on the actual people themselves? So I very much wish that organizationally, organizations would take more responsibility for this. But what I've seen in practice is that organizations will just kind of take and take and take and, it, and are reliant on the individual to set boundaries, right? And I think that's where we get into trouble because a lot of people are not very skilled at setting boundaries for mm. themselves um, or pushing back. There was another study recently that showed that managers are only aware of about 60% of what's on the plate of their direct reports, which totally tracks for me. And so oftentimes people assume that because your manager is assigning you work, that you're expected to get that work done in a certain amount of time. And also that your manager is fully aware of all of the other things on your plate and that they also think that you can get this work done in this amount of time or by this deadline. And what is in reality the case is the managers are just trying to dole out the work. They're not thinking about, oh, you know, Jill over here, what does she have on her plate? Is she working like with this other department doing something? Do I know? No, they're just like doling out the work. And then it becomes incumbent on the individual to say, oh, yeah, like I'm happy to do that, but I'm going to have to shift these priorities instead of just absorb, 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 right? Um, I remember I had a, a client one time and she was saying that, you know, their their company had grown a lot, their team hadn't grown. So they were becoming more and more responsible for more work, even though, you know, their team actually didn't have any more headcount. And uh, we were talking through, you know, ways to set boundaries, how to talk to her manager about this, et cetera. And she finally went, did go to her manager. She ba you know, banded up with the other person on her team. They went to the manager. They explained what was happening, that they were like working 15 hour days to make sure this workload all happened. The manager was both totally shocked that they were working so much and also said, thank you so much for telling me this, because if you just absorb the work, I don't have any legs to stand on when I go ask for more headcount. Like if I go ask for more headcount and you're just doing all the work, I can't, like, I don't have anything to go on. Now I know you're doing the work of two people and you might burn out. Now I can say, hey, my team is doing the work of four people and they're only two people. We actually need more people. I think there'd be a lot of people uh, sitting there right now going, I need to speak to my my manager because of all the redundancies that are happening in many companies around the world where everyone's just absorbing, absorbing, absorbing and trying to keep their mouth shut because they're like, I don't want to be the next person to get the get the email from the HR person to say, oh, by the way, you're packing your bags. Um, right. So that's a challenge, right? So we're facing a challenging time at the moment with economy and mm -hmm. and many companies will take the easy route of like, let's let's just try and minimize our losses, uh, like our bottom line by removing headcount mm -hmm. and forget mm -hmm. the, the long-term cost that has on the organization or has on the culture or has on the people. Uh, and this is probably a, a challenging time right now for, for many people around making sure they can be proactive in preventing um, burnout or, or proactive in their way that they can manage recovery so they can perform at their best uh this is it's a tough one mm -hmm. and yeah and when times are tough you do have to battle down the hatches in a way when it comes to business for those that are in those situations where maybe they've had to reduce headcount maybe the the finances the economy is pretty challenging for them at the present 
What sort of things can they put in place knowing that they're going to require more from their staff to, to, to actually get out of the, to, to try and get through this period, but also make sure that their people are still in one piece at the end of it. Yeah. I mean, I think some of so the first thing is just to actually talk about it. Mm. Right. Like I think that so often it's like up on high, these decisions are made and then it's all like communicated out as if everything's going to be okay. And that there's not going to be, you know, struggle or growing pain. So I think part of it is just being transparent about what is happening. Mm. I think another part of this might be that we can actually have, you know, when we're having these conversations, uh, we might be saying, okay, as leadership, what can we reduce? What can we remove um, so that our people can focus on the things that move the needle and we can actually let go of some of this other stuff that maybe was important before, but is not going to be important right now. Like yeah. what are the things that actually keep revenue up? Let's focus on those things. And maybe, you know, maybe we did have some big goals of new projects or new initiatives. Maybe we're going to let those, you know, chill for a while while we do the core function of our business until we're back on our financial feet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is good. Uh, for you, you know, what is the, I, I suppose, number one tip that you would provide to people in the workplace around um, being able to increase their productivity and and re- minimize the potential effects of burnout? So two, actually three, I'm going to share three small things, right, that are actually very big things. So one of them is write everything down. Do not rely on your memory. Uh, People are very stressed out when they're trying to keep everything in their head, or maybe it's not all in their head, but they don't have like a single system. It's like you've got a paper notes here and you've got post-it notes on your desk and you're using Asana and you're using Jira and you've, you know, got like, we've got all the thing and email. That's also a to-do list. Get it all in one place so that you can prioritize things linearly. Um, The second thing would be every day, make a plan for tomorrow. So before you're done with your workday, spend five minutes making a plan for tomorrow, looking at your calendar, looking at your task list, making sure it's reasonable, right? Not setting yourself up for failure by being like, oh, I have an hour. I'm going to get these 30 things done in this hour. Like you're not, right? And then the third thing would be to um, remove as many distractions as you can. And quite often this is in the form of email notifications, Slack notifications, et cetera, because studies show that when we, every time we're in, that we are interrupted or distracted, it takes us about 23 minutes on average to get back to what we're doing. And so if we can reduce any of those restraction, distractions, that actually gives us more time back in the day. So we're able to get more done in the time that we have available. Uh, very, very good. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? When was the last time? Oh, um, I went rock climbing uh, on like a the face, like actual rock climbing, not in a rock climbing gym, but like on an actual rock face uh, last summer. I've probably done new things since then, but that's what I'm thinking of most that, um, yeah, that's the last time I did something like totally brand new to me and something, you know, physical new in my 40s. So <laughs> that's Fine. always another, another set of things. Yeah. Love it. What's the one question that you would love to solve? What's the one question that I would love to solve? So I would love to solve the question of, how can we be a productive society, getting things done, moving things along without that um, that really central mismatch between you know capitalism's needs and humanity's needs? Mm. Because you know, we've seen the extremes and we're at like late stage capitalism right now and that's not working so well for a lot of people. Communism also doesn't work very well. And so where is where is the middle zone of like, no, we are making progress. GDP is increasing. And also we're centering humans and their experience. Lovely. Uh, For you, how would you describe an inspiring great leader? And who is a great example of this for you? So I think that a great leader is somebody who is there when you need them for support unblocks when you need things unblocked, but also gives you a whole lot of autonomy. 
to move things forward, to think of your own ideas. And so they're kind of, they're, they're like a safety net almost, right? It's like Mm -hmm. they, um, they're there as a sounding board, but they're not telling you what to do and how to do it. They're pushing you off a cliff and providing the net for you, uh, if you need it. Um, in terms of like great leaders out there, these are always hard for me too. Just like the role model question is hard for me, but I will say like the, the CEO that I worked for, um, for two companies over 10 years, he did a really great job of that, right? And I think that's also why it was so difficult for me to imagine working for someone else at that point, because I was like, no, I've, I've got a good situation going. It's going to be hard to find that again. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Alexis, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, perfect. So my website is alexishasselberger.com, which I hope you'll put in the show notes because nobody will be able to spell it. (laughs) Uh, That's the best place to reach me for people who might be interested in uh, working with me. You can just sign up for a free consultation call right there. And then of course you can find me, you know, on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and all of those places at do more stress less. Do more stress less. Beautiful. Love it. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Alexis. Uh, I love the conversation, learning more about who you are as a human being, especially when you're young. It sounds like you're not going to be someone sitting on the sidelines waiting too long. You're you're one of those proactive people that likes to take action. Uh, To hear your insights around not only productivity and burnout, but also to look at how we can build better human experiences in the workplace how we can create and shape cultures in a more effective manner so that people, no matter what their natural way of doing things is, can thrive and we can work together in a more effective way. Um, So thank you very much. It's, It's been enlightening and I really, really enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders Movement by visiting Craig John's .com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.